Are you at your point where you think you've hit your bottom or maybe that there's just no way you're ever going to feel like things can change? I was like that. I really was. And I want you to know, my name is Bromo, by the way. I want you to know that there is a way out. Please join us for my podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, here we go. This is episode number 12. There is a way out. My name is Bromo. Thanks for being always with us, with me, for uh, listening in. It is uh, the 29th of January. It's actually about 46 degrees out here on a Monday in Bismarck. When it gets uh, five or six days in a row of 40 and above in Bismarck in January, it's like a parade out here. (laughs) It really is. Once again, now my sobriety date is two seventeen oh nine. I am an alcoholic. I'm not an expert as far as I don't have any credentials. Um, I do have experience, life experience, I guess, is how you would say it. But I always want to make sure that the people know that I'm not some, I'm not uh, credited or anything like that, accredited, or both ways. <laughs> I, I, I've told this story before, and I'm telling it again because the platform I used five years ago or so was with a different radio station. So if you've heard this before, I'm almost through with my story and I'll keep saying this over and over again. But the reason why I do this is for, I, I believe that sometimes people can hear someone's story and inspire them and uh, either pass that on to someone else or, family member, or who knows, maybe they give it a second thought and they think, well, you know what, maybe I drink too much. Or for those who think, yeah, I do drink too much and they listen in, maybe there are some signals they can pick up from my story or anybody's story. For anyone who shares, it's all of our hopes that somebody hears it and goes, you know what, a better life is in store for me. And there is a way out. My last episode I left you with... uh, at uh, at Pathfinders, when I'm in the third house, remember it's a nine-month deal where you go three months in one house and then the second house right around the corner, you stay there for three months and then you transition to the third house, which is right next door to the first house and you're there for your last three months before you move out on your own into, into civilization, so to speak, into a normal living. It's a scary thing it is, and I was in this third house, and I was—I literally had maybe three or four weeks to go, and uh, a guy that I saw from almost day one, his name was Rob, who went from house one to two to three with me, had taken his life, and we heard the news from our manager, Keith, and it jolted me, shocked me so much that for the first time, I had a moment of clarity. I, for the first time, I realized to myself, you better do something here. This is not a game. Again, there's no, again, there's no TV cameras 
uh, hiding around the corner to film some sort of reality show with you in it. I mean, yeah, you were a radio guy and this and that. People know who you are, but this is your life now, you goof. Um, in other words, I said to myself for the first time, I said, wow, this is real. I better get busy here because if I don't and I, and I leave here not knowing what I'm going to do, where I'm going to live, of course, I would find a place to live. But uh, if I wasn't involved and stayed in touch with AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, if I didn't t- stay in touch with anybody I went to Freedom Ranch or Pathfinders with, I was doomed. It literally was like one of those sand beakers that was turned over. And that's how it is really, in my opinion, if you completely detach yourself from anybody, from friends, from anybody that you know that's in the program, from going to meetings, from talking about it, um, you know, I don't really want to say more power to you, but for some people who think that they never do have to go to meetings again. And uh, for some people that think that they're recovered with an, with an E-R-E-D, you're never recovered, in my opinion, from this disease. And we would hear people all the time when I finally started listening. And again, I didn't listen to anybody really when I was going through Freedom Ranch, going through Pathfinders. All I wanted to do was get past the meeting, get out of there. And go on to something more, more fun. Like what? I don't know, like smoke a cigar and drink a cup of coffee out in the, out in the porch. But when this news came from our manager about Rob, it jolted me. And I said, well, you know what? You should probably give it your full attention, don't you think? Because who knows about the insanity of the disease where it could strike me? No one knows. And the, the thought that went through my mind and still to this very single day, was what was going on in Rob's head the last few seconds of his life. It, it, it just, yeah, the insanity of the disease. So what I said to myself was, you know what, I got to get a sponsor. That is number one because people have been asking me that. And I now remember I'm over a year sober and I've got like three or four weeks to go in this recovery home and – it was really unheard of that I didn't have a, a sponsor. So many people so many people that I knew were already underway with their steps, had their sponsor. No one seemed to bother me about it, but they asked me quite a bit. My manager would ask me. Other people would. I'm working on it, I would say. I wanted to pass on a couple things that I forgot to mention dur- during the Freedom Ranch times. One of the uh, traditions, and I hope they still do it, was they had this big, huge placard, this big, huge cardboard sign that anytime we would go into a meeting and or maybe before our lessons, because we had we went through we went through uh, lessons. We had a teacher there five days a week at Freedom Ranch, and uh, we went through some of the steps, and we had this big, huge cardboard sign that one of the members from Freedom Ranch would stand up and eagerly lift above his head. And it was the third step prayer. And it was God. I offered some, I have, I've got this memorized because we said it all the time. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me, to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. 
Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. It was ingrained in us. To this, to this day, I still finally, although I didn't finally back then, uh, cite this to myself, but I do quite frequently now. Of course, the serenity prayer we all know. God, get, uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I have a ring that I wear, a silver one, that has the serenity prayer on the inside. And, of course, it's on my left left hand because I broke my right-hand finger. So it's not like any woman out there notices, oh, Bromo must be married. Nobody notices that. <laughs> I do have to explain, though, why it's on my left. It looks like a wedding ring. Seriously, it's a pretty big ring. And I, I wear that. I have a necklace with a triangle, which I am quite proud of. And I have a, one tattoo. And I got that back in September of two years ago. And uh, I know I'm not a tattoo kind of a guy and nobody would ever, and I never in my whole life would have ever thought that I would do that, but I did because I want to look at it every single day. And you get the wise guys, of course. Hey, you better not, better not drink. I'll have to change that tattoo around. Yeah, I get it. I needed a sponsor. Now I wanted a sponsor. Now I wanted to wake up, so to speak, because I was scared. I was beyond scared after the news about Rob. He was just like all of us, just a guy with dreams and wanted to get out of there. He had visions of going and getting back into life and transitioning, and and all that halted when he went out and drank. And I guess in his mind, he chose that the only way out was to take his life, and he left his son. So I started asking people about their sponsors because I knew very little about it. And for those of you who wonder what a sponsor is, a sponsor usually is somebody that you feel comfortable with. And it's always the, it's always with a guy, a guy with a guy or a girl with a girl. It has to be that way. And I've been told why, and I can explain that to you later. But obviously with someone that you're very comfortable with, with you go through the steps, you have to be brutally honest. And you have to really feel free to tell this person anything about your background, your life, all that stuff. So obviously you need someone you trust. And what I didn't know is when you find a sponsor, you know, you work it out for a while. And if you don't feel comfortable with that sponsor and things aren't, you know, meeting your, your needs or your requirements, or maybe you just had a change of heart, um, that's, it's, it's your own business whether you change Uh, sponsors or not, you are allowed to go from one sponsor to another. A lot of people do it. And so I had a sponsor for a little bit. I found someone that I was comfortable with for a little bit, and then I moved on, found someone else. And this person that I found was a lot younger than me. Of course, who isn't? (laughs) And he lived right around the corner, literally right around the corner from Pathfinder's. He had a tiny little apartment with a dog. And I looked up to him because he had a lot of um, a lot of personality in the way he spoke, a lot of confidence. Um, so I went to him and I said, will you sponsor me? And he said, sure. So he gave me some 
things to do, things to work on. I started going through the steps slowly, very slowly with him. I think I would meet with him twice a week because he was a busy guy too. And one of the things that uh, I remember clashing with him was we were talking about when I got out of there about getting a job. And you see, I kept trying to think I could get back into radio very easily. Oh, yeah, somebody will pick me up. And so I was thinking of higher uh, higher plateaus than just a job. And he used to get after me and say, look, if you have to work at McDonald's, so what? And I'm like, I think I'm not going to go work at McDonald's. He goes, dude, you have to, you have to, you have to put aside your ego. If you pick up two jobs, you need to go out and do it. You need, just can't sit around and think someone's going to throw in a, a very, um, a very cool job at you. What you want, if you're getting sober and you're staying sober, the most important thing is to get back into society and get a job and slowly start working again. Quit being so, yeah, I understand in life you can be selective. That's part of what life is all about. But you can't sit there and knock any kind of job, especially when you're getting back into reality again, into real life. Remember now, I come out from the Freedom uh, Freedom Ranch. I keep saying Freedom Riders, and if I do, I apologize because we have a group out here called Freedom Riders. Think about I've been at Freedom Ranch and then Pathfinders. The grand total is over a year of being in a recovery home, in two different recovery homes. So now I'm, I'm getting ready to get out of and get on my own. And I'm scared because I don't know where I'm going to do. And I finally remember that house I told you about last episode where we would go and we would eat dinner. We would make dinner and then leave. Well, somebody suggested there's a house in back of that house. Why don't we get a bunch of our guys that are graduating, so to speak, from Pathfinders. Let's all get a sober house together, four or five of us. So we did. And I had my sights on getting out of the program, moving from Pathfinders to this house in Imperial Beach was where it was at. We did that, and everything was great, right up to the point where when I was thinking I was going to get unemployment, Uh, I was wrong (laughs) because at that time, not only was I getting a disability check, I was also getting severance pay from my job from the radio station. Remember when I got laid off? And unbeknownst to me, they don't like it when you receive both at the same time. So that caught up to me. That caught up to me and they said, listen, I remember still clear as a bell on the phone. The initial phone call to the unemployment people, they said, yeah, you'll be getting such and such and such, and you'll be getting your first check in such and such and such. And I remember hanging up and saying, thank you, such and such. That sounds nice. I'll be able to pay my part of the rent. And as my part of the rent came up, I had not received a check from such and such. So I called and I said, what's going on with that? This time I got another clerk on the phone. And this guy says to me, you're not getting squat. He maybe said that in a nicer way, but he said, you're not getting anything. As a matter of fact, you're going to owe us money. I said, what? He explained to me in a very nice way in his sneer comments that you can't double dip. You can't do what I was doing. 
And now I started to panic. I had no place to go. I was not going to be able to get a room in this house with the other fellas. Where am I to go? And fortunately, my angels, the ones that took me away when I got out of the hospital, when I relapsed for the very last time and I needed a place. And remember, I, I got out of the hospital and I moved into this house in Alpine, just outside San Diego, which is called Alpine. And I needed to get on a list for Freedom Ranch. I was able to go back to that same house. They took me in because they knew I had no place to go, no job, no car, no nothing. And they took me in and I was safe and I was starting to go to meetings once or twice a week. And everything was great. Everything was great until I, you know, I finally found an opportunity to get a job through another alumni from Pathfinders. He says to me, hey, I have a job that I think I can get you in. And I go, well, what is it? He says, how'd you like to be a bill collector? (laughs) I said, excuse me? Yeah, well, I think I can get you a job there. Let me go work. Work on it for a while. And actually, the guy that ran the job, the manager there, was in the program as well. And I went and interviewed with this guy. I don't know anything about collecting. I didn't even, I didn't even own a shirt and a tie. And yes, yes, bill collecting is what it sounds like when people call you up. Hi, is this Mrs. Johnson? Yes, it is. Hi, Mrs. Johnson. This blah, 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 blah. Hey, could you please call back later? My dog just fell into a manhole. Yeah, well, okay. Those are the people that call you right when you sit down for dinner. And, and um, after sweating it out and having no income, no money, no more disability, none of that, I was hired and I went and got trained to be a bill collector. And let me tell you something right from the start, man, I did not want to do this job. It's not the most glamorous job in the world and there's some people that are very good at it. And they're just natural talkers on the phone. They're smart. They get in front of a computer. They figure out what they can do. It's also the, it's also the paper that they pass out. Some of these bill collection places, they get these paper, which is what the debt is. The debt is what people owe. And some of them are really up to date. Some of the paper that I was getting was like back in 1922. And the odds of me collecting any money were like me going to the moon. And playing golf out there was very, very unbelievably, uh uh-uh. So I was hating this job from the start. It was confusing, complicated. You had to go and learn all these rules of bill collecting. Because, you know, you can get your rear end sued. You can, your company can get sued if you break any laws to somebody who owes a bill. They call them debtors. Debtors can sue the pants off you if you don't do it right. And, of course, there's all these rules where you have to identify yourself, tell everybody that the, the phone call is being recorded, blah, 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 blah. Make sure you get the right person on. You can't bother them in certain area codes around the state after a certain time. You can't call their work if they tell you not to. It really weighs heavy in the debtors sometimes. I had to learn all this stuff. And uh, I was not, not, not enjoying my job at all. As a matter of fact, I hated every single, single day of it. And listen, I'm not making fun of those who are bill collectors right now because everyone's got their cup of tea, so to speak. It just wasn't for me. And I missed radio like crazy. 
And every day that went by, I was still surprised that nobody came out my door and offered me some morning show or something like that. Because remember, I thought I was some superstar that I was on this show. And by the way, that show was still going steady. Dave Shelley and Chainsaw was still going strong. They didn't need me in there. And I hadn't talked to Dave in quite a while, and I missed him. So, as a bill collector, I'm doing this job, and a couple years goes by, and now I'm approaching, I want to get this right so I don't mess it, I'm approaching four or five years sober. And I remember right around, still going to a meeting once or twice a week, every once in a while I'd go out to Freedom Ranch, and I think in my third year of being sober, they asked me to come out and speak. Now, that what an experience that was. Because normally, if you go to a meeting, an AA meeting, and they have a secretary there and the leader, and they choose you and you go up and speak, you can speak for some places have a time limit where they'll ring a cowbell or something like that for you to wrap it up. Some will let you ramble on as long as you want. But in a speaker meeting, if you're the main speaker, you go for about 50 minutes, 5-0. And I remember the first time I went out to Freedom Ranch to speak in front of all those people that were sitting in the seats that I once sat at. It was pretty intimidating. I probably did a rotten job, too, because it's uh, you get nervous. <laughs> it's pretty scary, all these raw people looking at you. And uh, you think you're some sort of big shot because you got two or three years sober. Any, hey, look, I hate talking like that because anyone's a big shot when you stay sober a day. Half a day, two years, whatever. But when you let it get to your head and you think you've got it licked, you don't. So I remember trying to go out there for the very first time and speak, and I was really raw, and I probably forgot a lot of stuff, and I got nervous. Anyway, as I'm approaching four or five years, it's right around Super Bowl time, and I was uh, leaning over. At this point, I had a beat-up car that I was able to get. And uh, this beat-up car was, of course, from a friend who had a friend who had a friend that gave it to us for almost nothing, and I made payments. Sorry, I had to turn my phone off. But I had a flat tire, and I went out there to change this thing. And I must have moved my back or I bent over wrong. And, man, did I pull a muscle into the far right of my back towards my tailbone. Man, did that hurt. Oh, I had pulled this muscle so bad that every time I went in at night to try to go to sleep, any way that I lay or lie on my stomach, on my side, it, it, the pain was throbbing. I was taking aspirin as much as I possibly could, and I couldn't get any sleep. And I went in to work at that bill collection place. And I was in pain. And one of the gals that worked there saw my face and she said, look, dude, go to the emergency room. And I said, I don't have any insurance. She says, look, they'll take you. Just go in there and explain what's going on. So I went down the emergency room. I told the people at work, I got to get out of here. And they let me go. And I went into the emergency room. And of course, when the first three or four minutes that I'm there, they take my blood pressure. And of course, it's always high. Every time I go into the doctor, even today, my blood pressure is always high. And this time, because of the pain, my blood pressure was really high. So they took it another couple times. Still, 
super, super high. They took me, they made me do a couple of tests, if I can remember, breathing and such. And I think they, I don't know what they did next. Here's what I found out though. The doctor comes in and he goes, all right, here's the deal. You know, you got a block in your heart. I said, you want to say that again? He goes, yeah, you got a block in your heart. So there's two things we can do. One, we can put you on a rigorous. And about six months later, we'll check you out and see, see how you're doing. I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Or, or we can go ahead and put three stents in your heart today. I said, okay, well, uh, I think we could do that, I guess. Next thing I know, they have somebody that comes in and talks to me about low-income, um, uh, like low-income insurance or low-income a program that they had that helps out people with no money. And I'm signing this, I'm signing that. And then I'm laying down on a stretcher or a gurney or whatever. Remember, I couldn't say that a couple episodes ago. I'm laying down and they're they're cruising me in to the uh, surgery room. And I do remember looking up and it was like a theater, like, the, like you see in the movies, where there's a bunch of students up above looking down on you. There must have been 15, 20 students looking down. And the guy knew who I was because I, maybe I blabbed because I'm thinking I'm trying to impress people. I, I told him that I was on the radio. And then I told him who I was. Oh, no. And then, of course, he, he was a huge listener. Let's put KGB on right now. <clears throat> they put that on while they prepped me. And it was one of those things where I was awake through the whole thing. And I'm listening to him going, all right, let's get ready to rock and roll. And we're sitting and they go in by the groin area and he's, I'm listening to this and that and I'm barely cohesive. Next thing I know, I wake up, I got three stents in my heart. So I'm there for like a, uh, one full day and they gave me some medicine to take. It was Norco for the pain. And again, I didn't have hardly any money. I had like zero money. And of course, my angels helped me out with that. But the people I lived with were very smart. They realized that Norco, and have you ever taken Norco? The only thing that I'd ever taken close to that was Vicodin. And back then when I, when I took Vicodin, I also washed that down with two or three martinis, and it was great. So I loved that feeling, that Vicodin, Vicodin-ish kind of feeling. But I had never taken Norco. They're explaining to me what Norco was. So the people that I lived with were very smart. One of them, he says, quote, I'm going to give you one of these at night. And we'll monitor how you're doing. And I think I was given a three-week supply. And the first time I took a Norco and I went into my room and sat down in front of my TV, man, where you been my last four or five years? Was that the greatest feeling? Just super comfortable, super mellow. Oh, this is awesome. I could watch anything on TV and have it be great or do whatever. Ugh. That was the first night. Second night was the same way. Third night, same way. About the second weekend, yeah, not so much anymore. And I remember I got to the very last, here's your last Norco. And I remember took, I, I, I had it on me and they went to Vegas, these two. And I was watching their house. And I had my last Norco set up and I was going to, I was going to take it. And I knew that it wasn't going to be such a great effect anymore. 
because remember, it's the effect started to tail off. My body was getting used to it and wanted more. I swallowed that last Norco, and from out of nowhere, first time in almost five years, first time since I told you I was at Pathfinders and I wanted to walk over to the park and drink a couple of martinis and listen to that show, first time I'm taking that Norco for the very last time, my voice pops up, my right side. Hey, you know what would be even great with this Norco? You got a car now and you got keys and your angels are now in Las Vegas. You just checked with them a second ago. They're not coming back till like Sunday. Why don't you get in your car and drive down to that liquor store a mile away? Why don't you go down and buy one martini? Hey, shut up, the other voice said, because the other voice knows. But this one was persistent. Dude, five years. It's not like been, you know, three weeks, 30 days, but it's five years. You got this. Take that Norco. Before you take that Norco, go down and pick up a couple martinis. Come back. Those guys are gone. They won't know. They won't know. And guess what I did? I took the, the car keys. I got up and I got ready and I drove out to the Freedom Ranch and I caught a meeting. And for the first time in a long, long time, I realized this is what I need to do. This is how I stay sober. I'll tell you where I've been now, and i tell you what I've been doing lately on my next episode. I'm almost getting ready to have you on. I'm looking forward to it. My name is Bromo, and there is a way out. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.